being brave enough to take those opportunities when they arise because new situations are challenging and scary. doesn't matter how old you are, how experienced you are. Every time you go into a new organisation, there's stuff you have to learn. There's stuff you don't know. There's people you don't know and that's hard for a little while. Welcome to the Thriving in Complexity podcast. I'm your host, Suzanne Lubertilia, and I'd love for you to join me as I peek behind the scenes of complex situations and workplaces and interview leaders and experts who will challenge your thinking, inform and inspire your leadership so you and your team can thrive in the volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous world we live in. Our guest today is Kathy Campbell. Kathy has worked in the health sector for over 20 years, including senior roles with public and private providers, consulting firms and vendors in Australia and Canada. She's a non-executive director of the Brisbane North Primary Health Network and of the Wide Bay Hospital and Health Service. Her previous directorships have included Uniting Care Queensland and Uniting Agewell in Victoria and Tasmania. Kathy's a qualified accountant. She's a fellow of the Australian Institute of Company Directors and also a fellow of the Australasian Institute of Digital Health. And she was their inaugural chair of their Precision Health Community of Practice. Kathy's also completed Leadership Strategies for Information Technology in Healthcare at Harvard University. She's a government gateway reviewer and she's even completed an introductory genomics medicine course. So Kathy has an extensive network across a knowledge of healthcare, aged care, and community services, both nationally and internationally. She currently is a consultant with Occam Consulting, where she has worked across Australia and internationally. And immediately prior to that, she was the Information Management and ICT Project Director for the Victorian Comprehensive Cancer Centre. And that was a fairly challenging role where she was involved in a collaboration of 10 leading health research and academic organisations that were focused on enhancing patient care, furthering cancer research and improving cancer survival rates through collaboration. Prior to that, she was a Chief Information Officer for Uniting Care Health And before that, she led a very challenging project to implement a shared payroll system for a vendor working with hospitals across British Columbia. So anyone who has a background in Queensland will be aware that payroll system implementations in healthcare are particularly complex and challenging. So looking forward to the conversation with Cathy today. Welcome, Kathy. It's lovely to have you on the podcast today. Now, Kathy, you've got a really interesting role as a board member because you sit on both the board of a hospital and health service, which is funded by the state, but you also sit on the board of one of our primary health networks, which is funded by the Australian government. So you're very much caught in the middle in in many ways between (laughs) those two unfortunately, often competing areas that we would love to see working together. So I wonder if you could give our listeners a bit of a feel for some of the complex challenges that you're faced with as a board member on you know, working across those two systems. Yeah, sure. And I guess 
I've also worked in the private sector, so the private health insurers, which is complex as well because you get government funding for some things and and so on. (laughs) I think one of the biggest challenges for me is that, you know, if you start at a macro level, the system is constrained. Yeah. And it needs to be constrained. We don't want health and welfare and aged care taking over the whole budget or there's nothing for education and roads and other things. So we've got to work out how to do things a lot smarter and quite differently, but that goes almost right back to the beginning of people taking responsibility as addressing early prediction, prevention, but our health system primarily funds diagnosis and treatment. Yes. So it's almost like the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. But if we keep doing that, we've got an aging population, we've got more comorbidities, we've got discoveries of drugs and better treatments that cost more and people expect them. We've got all those things coming together. And in in the context of emergency departments as well, we've got people turning up to emergency sometimes who probably don't need to be there. They could wait till Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday and go to their GP. Or as someone I was talking to recently said, you know, when we were kids, if we had a sniffly nose, our parents would say, oh, you'll be okay and wait and, yeah. you know, just wait a few days sort of thing. So, that, you know, there's all that sort of stuff. And I think the other side, which particularly affects the PHNs, but it also affects the health services, is you get money to do some really fabulous projects, some really interesting things, some things that bring the health system together and see fabulous outcomes. And they might be funded for one year, two years or three years. And then they're not funded on an ongoing basis. So you get these little pockets of great things happen, but there's no embedding or scaling or sharing them around to other places in the state, let alone other places nationally. So it's quite frustrating in a way because you can do some really, really good things, but then how do we actually both learn from great things that are happening elsewhere and implement those but also take those things that we are doing and do them really well. And not everything requires money, yeah, obviously, but often it helps to get things off the ground. And if you're doing something quite differently, the savings take time to realise to then reinvest. And that's a really big challenge in the system, isn't it, Cathy? Because we want to see really great demonstration projects that actually show what can be done but at the same time expecting that some of those projects would suit absolutely everywhere and could be scaled up across the system. But there's a really lost opportunity to actually take some of those ideas and lessons learned and run in parallel, you know, some implementations that suit local contexts in other parts of the system. Yeah, absolutely. And even they might need modifying slightly, but we do have a mentality in Australia where state by state and sometimes even health service by health service, but they start with, but we're different. And my question is always, but should you be? Yes. You know, fundamentally, most of what you do is the same. And it was interesting coming out of the private sector into the public sector and going to Melbourne and working across 10 organisations. And I was introducing people in the 10 organisations to one another. And I thought, isn't it interesting that the CIOs in the private sector, mainly not for profit, but the for profits as well, We all knew one another. We got together a few times a year. We shared a lot of information. I've got a big international network and yet I come across people who've, you know, only worked in one system or one state or one health service or one region and they're not thinking more broadly about how they can learn and take ideas from other places and adapt them. Yeah. And I think one of the things I was really keen to explore with you are those types of leadership approaches that you think help people really thrive 
in complex systems. And I know you've worked across so many of those different environments. So obviously, really thinking about how you're collaborating and learning from your colleagues is one of those approaches. What are some of the other things that you've seen that really do help to make a difference? I think making sure that you have the time to take a step above the day-to-day urgent stuff. And I think that's that's a big challenge in healthcare, particularly for operational C, you know, C-suite or, or down the tree, bad way to express it, but in the rest of the organisation because they have got such operational demands. But to take that step back, delegate effectively, trust your people, take that step back and go, you know what, if we did this, that can just free up a bit of time. Are our nurses really working to the top of their scope of practice and their capability? And that then frees up a bit of time. And how do we get those things happening? And how as leaders we encourage people to do that without them feeling that this is just additional pressure on them to achieve more for less. Yeah, yeah. And Kathy, I know I was talking to someone in a coaching context the other day, and this is a very real issue for people, particularly people who are on that first initial rung Mm. of executives, where they're actually stuck in the middle between the chief executive, the very senior executives, and then they're actually running all the clinical teams on the ground. And so they've got all of those pressures coming up from down where they're really focused on individual people and their clinical requirements and dealing with all of the emotions and the professionalism that goes around that. And then they're getting pressure from up above Mm. in terms of what's happening in the system. What are the things that are driving change? What are the constraining forces that are at play? And so it's a really very much feels like you're a jam in the middle of the sandwich in many cases, and being able to step up and really look at that. I mean, have you seen anywhere that where people have done that particularly well, where they actually support their teams to do that? I think I'd say I see it in pockets rather than whole organisations. You know, it does – I mean, culture is a very big part of that. Yeah. And one of the things I was thinking about as well when you were talking about that situation is – so much really good innovation happens on the ground. Yeah. And very rarely is there a culture that allows that to thrive and for it to be identified and taken, you know. And it's another example of what I was talking about a little bit earlier in terms of that bigger stuff, but it's as simple as something I saw in aged care at one stage where for palliation situations, so end of life, where families are in spending a lot of time in their family member's room and that sort of stuff. They put together a trolley and it had some books on grief, it had some magazines, it had cards, it had a couple of things with kids, some books, you know, just stuff that would help a family have things to do while they're sitting there for hours on end. And as soon as someone senior saw that, they went, oh, this is great, we've got to roll it out across the other places, you know, and it's getting that messaging up, but it's also acknowledging those people and then other people go, oh, we can do it as well. And I think that... The in the middle of the sandwich stuff is particularly challenging when you've got a lot of layers of bureaucracy. Yeah. I'm a great one for flat structures, which in the public sector particularly aren't always necessarily the case. No. And if you can flatten out the structure, while it might sound like it puts more demands on people, in some ways it takes demands off because there's less meetings and less reports and you just take away a lot of that rubbish which then frees up 
brain space as much as time because some of what you need is actually brain space, emotional space, not just physically time. So I think that's part of it. The other thing I think is attitudinal. Some people are naturally looking for better ways of doing things, even if they are caught in that day-to-day stuff. Yeah. Other people are not. I can think of a, a friend of mine, and she won't mind me saying this, she worked in a situation where they were lending, and this is a different sector completely in the arts, yep. lending out music instruments. And she was trying to keep track of them all and there were issues and stuff. And I said, just set up a spreadsheet. Oh, I don't have time. Yeah. You know? Whereas I would have thought, I'm going to get to work half an hour earlier and just get this thing Done. systematized. Yeah. You know? Yeah. There's three or four people in the office with her. It would have made it much easier for all of them, etc. So, you know, I think sometimes – there is a – it's almost in your nature or your personality that you do want to see things done better. And I think it goes back to what you mentioned before about collaboration. It's actually focusing on how you get everyone moving in the same direction with you. Mm. So, yes, it's complex. There's all sorts of things happening, but how do we actually look at how we're going to keep in alignment mm. Mm. in terms of how we're working and yeah, how do we balance not just my job isn't to just constrain and look at how do we keep the budget under control. Mm. My job is also to be an enabler and let some of these innovations through and help breathe some life into them. I know many years ago I was involved when we had the tsunami of medical students coming through mm-hmm. the system. So we had more than tripling. We were worried we weren't going to be able to register them all. Yeah. And I know the way that we got through that is because we had clinicians on the ground who came up with a really innovative model. And when I look back on that now, I realize you know, how crucial it was to have someone who was in the bureaucracy, who was helping them jump through all the hoops, clear the obstacles out of the way, but also managing their expectations about look, we don't need this to work absolutely everywhere. Yeah. We just need to work out where it will work best. And you're pleased to say we got through and it made a huge difference. And that's why we had all of the doctors able to be registered. But I learned a lot very early in my career, I suppose, through that process. And you can apply a lot of that in a lot of different contexts. Mm. Yeah. Are there any things that you think that leaders should avoid in those types of situations? I think a really big one is blame. Mm -hmm. I have seen a number of blame cultures and worked in a number of blame cultures and what it does is it stifles decision-making. It stifles creativity. So I used to joke about people coming to meetings hunting in packs because no one would ever turn – you know, and I've been a supplier on the vendor side, a supplier to health services who've worked that way. No one – even if you're going in to see a really senior person, they would never come on their own. So decision-making authority, accountability, they'd always be held accountable and blamed if something went wrong, but they didn't necessarily have the authority because they would be overruled or if something goes wrong. Now, obviously, if it's a a clinical issue, that's a different matter. You know, if you've harmed a patient, there's a process to go through and that can be accidental or it can be, you know, not following processes, etc. But to some extent, if you're going to innovate and make change and acknowledging that we're all human – you know, people are going to mess up a bit sometimes and it's okay, let's learn from it, let's do it better next time, how can we improve? But if people are so scared all the time, that means they're under more pressure yeah, and feeling more pressure emotionally and 
all that sort of stuff. It's just a horrible situation for everybody concerned. It is, and particularly in this environment where it is so politicised by the media, where we want people who make a mistake to actually own up to it, to learn from it. But when we have a culture that actually talks about, oh, isn't it terrible? There were all of these mistakes and, you know, this is worse and this is, you know, and this happened and that's happened and, and it's thrown all over the media. It just sends the wrong message to people about we actually want a learning culture. Yeah where we reflect on what happened. Yes, it's not great that a mistake happened, but it's worse if we push it under the rug and pretend it didn't happen and people don't learn and improve mm-hmm. so that, you know, we don't have similar things happening again. And I think in certainly in clinical areas with open disclosure and all that sort of stuff, there is an openness, but it's almost in the everything else that if the culture's not good, it can stifle that and also even mean that people don't necessarily ask for help when they should or don't admit that they don't know things Yeah, because of how they might be perceived. And that goes right up the tree. That's the other thing. Yeah, We're not just talking about people on the ground. This is some of the people I've seen, you know, because culture does come from the top and some of the people I've seen respond to that culture in, you know, probably a survival way. Yeah. They've been quite senior. So, Cathy, what are some of the practical things that you think leaders at those senior levels should really be focusing on? So, if you're on a board, what are the sorts of things you're looking for from the CEO? For me, culture is a really big one. So, it's it's living the ethics and the values and getting out and about, being open and transparent and being open and transparent with your board as well, you know, the no surprises stuff but also not feeling threatened by having your board out and about talking to people. Yeah. You don't have to do everything when you're going out talking to people as a formal let's go and visit places. Very famously, Nick Greiner, who was the former Premier of New South Wales, was on the board of one of the supermarket chains. I can't remember which one of it. And I think he might have been chair actually, but he used to just pop into supermarkets anywhere in New South Wales and just say hello, walk around, introduce himself to the manager and, you know, that sort of stuff. That get out and about and just see what's going on I think is is really important. Yeah. I think also the in this environment where things are changing so rapidly, no matter what sector you're in, being a really good change leader and bringing people on the journey, engaging them and – the what's in it for them, how's it going to benefit them, how's it going to benefit their customers who, you know, if they're an IT group, it's the internal customers. If it's the nurse, it's the patients that's a customer because most people are motivated to do a good job and serve people well. Yes. And, you know, you can argue more so in the caring professions. I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think most people are motivated to, to do a really good job. So I think that being a really good change leader is essential these days as well. Yeah, I think it brings up a really important point around understanding what motivates Mm. the people that you work with. Mm. I was once in a situation where we had consultants come in. I was a public servant. I was in a room full of people I knew who were extremely committed and could probably earn a lot more money if they didn't work for the public service. And the consultants came in and made the mistake of telling everyone, well, we know what really matters to people here. It's how much they get paid and you could have heard a pin mm. drop in the room and the temperature 
just rose. You could almost see the steam coming out of people's ears. And we know that particularly when we're talking about you know, the public health systems, a lot of our primary care you know, providers, they are all there for very different mm. reasons. Mm. And not everybody is highly motivated by money. Yeah. You know? And you wouldn't be in certain, you know, I wouldn't be doing public sector boards if, or public sector funded boards if I was motivated by money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I think to the what motivates people's stuff as well, which is what's really important, is that that's a cascading thing as well. Because if you're on the ground running a small team, you've got to know what motivates each of the people. And each of them, it will be slightly different. Yes. You know, some people will be at the stage of their life where they have family responsibilities, elderly parents or children or whatever. And so the flexibility to be able to get home early, but then perhaps log on and do a bit more work later. For other people, it might be other motivations, you know, it might be a career objective or something. Yeah. And I think for, for CEOs, it's the broad change stuff, but it's also the knowing and understanding their direct reports and making sure they know and understand their direct reports. And, and it can take a bit of time, but if you, if you understand that well, you know, as a C-suite executive, I've managed to get a number of things through that are really significant by understanding the motivations of my boss. Yes. And making sure that the messaging I was giving wasn't just targeting what was good for the organization, but also what was good for him or her, you know, yeah, that sort of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a bit of a theme emerging in our conversation, I think, about the dangers of a one-size-fits-all approach. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, really making sense of what's important for different people, what will work in different contexts, that's really seeming to come out. Mm. And so it really leads me to think about you've been doing a lot of work with health consumers Mm -hmm. and other community groups. And I know there are a lot of dangers there as well in terms of being very tokenistic. I mean, how do we actually go about having meaningful engagement and then bringing what we learn from those engagements back into how we design and deliver health services. And it's a really, really, really important and interesting question that so many organisations are grappling with. <laughs> you know, yeah. Pretty much every organisation I'm involved with in one way or another is, is working through that. And there's, there's multiple different models. And I think on the ground when you're delivering services, you can do some really good co-design stuff. And that's quite specific to programs often. And that's quite mature. I think where it gets more complex is as you try to do it at a broader level, you know, and if I think about the Community Advisory Committee at the PHN, which I chair, which is a board subcommittee, now we're required to have that by our federal funders, which is fine, but we do some really outstanding co-design and consultation on specific programs. So how do we make that effective? And I think you know, we've been working through that and made some changes. But I think the other thing is how do you make sure you get people who are able to contribute more broadly as well as bring their own experiences and their own connections into their groups, mm-hmm. whatever that might be. It might be related to their illness. It might be vol- related to their paid work or their voluntary work or a family member, or, you know, or something. And probably where I've seen that done best is in Melbourne – the Victorian Comprehensive Cancer Centre, one of the members is Peter Mack, you know, big cancer, yep. as is Olivia Newton-John, so the, you know, big cancer centres, as well as academic and other hospitals and so on. But 
I wanted, because of the intensive nature of the data and the information that we were bringing together from across the 10 organisations, I wanted to have board visibility uh, and I was leading the project. So I got the board to agree to have a information strategy subcommittee of the board, so official board committee chaired by the independent deputy. And then all these triple C committees have to have a consumer rep. And I went, oh my goodness, because I'd been to some of the consumer meetings and of course it felt almost like, an AA, not that I've been to AA meetings, but the I'm such and such, I had breast cancer and I've been through clear for five years, you know, that, that sort of, and it really defined them. Yeah. And I know other people, including my husband, have a number of health issues and they won't let it define them, you know. And I wanted someone who could bring that consumer perspective but also provide input into IT and information strategy and data governance and all those sorts of challenges and, you know, that sort of stuff. And they managed through their consumer networks to find someone who's, I think it was father and sister had both been treated for cancer, so very close to him, but he was in a senior strategy, IT strategy role at the NAB. Yeah. He was fabulous. Yeah. You know, and so it's getting some of those sorts of people engaged as well. And quite often consumer groups, because we meet during the day and all that sort of stuff, we end up with a lot of older people. Yeah. You know, and older people are fine, but you, you've got to, if you're representing and providing services to the whole of society in a geographic area, for example, you want to have a full cross section. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and so do you do that by getting out and about where people already are rather than yeah. we're going to have a such and such and you come to us sort of model? Yeah. And how do you do it effectively, say, in aged care? How do you do it effectively where you've got that engagement on the ground? in residential aged care or the retirement villages have their, you know, common rooms and that sort of stuff. But how do you do it for the community clients? Yes, yes. You know, but also how do you then get the strategic input at the higher level? Mm. It really raises the question of what is the purpose mm. and then how do you actually design your engagement so it's actually fit for purpose. Mm. So if you want someone who's got that big system, big picture, thinking you're a NAB digital person with first-hand experience of actually having a very close family member go through the system is going to bring a really valuable perspective. Mm. But then for some other things, it might be about testing assumptions oh, absolutely. for patients. Yeah. You know, and actually, so it might not be having a representative, it might actually be thinking about how do you actually get feedback from consumers about how they experience something, mm. recognising that one person's experience isn't everybody's experience. And there's certainly a lot of work being done around patient experience, patient outcomes, patient activation, all those, yeah. you know, so there's a lot of work being done around those sorts of things. And as I said, co-design type things, but you're right, it is about what's the purpose. And I think in healthcare, the other thing is we're all consumers. Yes. In one way or the other. Yeah. So yeah. you're also bringing your own perspective, which is important too. And I know when we start talking about, I know you've got the, can see the edge of your lovely postcard in the, <laughs> the photo there, um, beautiful Indigenous art. When we come to talking about providing healthcare for First Nations peoples, being really conscious of, because we see ourselves as a health consumer, that we're not making those assumptions on behalf of those, you know, other people who might have a very different way of looking at the world, a very different experience of the system and making sure that we're actually creating space for those voices. I think that's important as well, and not 
But again, not to assume that someone who is, say, an urban Indigenous person is going to have the same experience as someone in a remote area or a regional area. Yeah. And the same expectations or even the same family or connection to land. And, you know, there's all sorts of things that are different. But also in the called community, you can have one person on a committee, but they're only ever going to be connected to their one cultural group. Yes. Unless they're working more broadly, and some of them are. Yes. So how do you make sure you don't see them as the only only voice sort of thing? Yes. And how do you make sure they bring a broader perspective and how to make sure they understand the need that they br- to bring in broader perspective? I think the other thing is there's all sorts of issues around digital literacy. Yeah. You know, and me with my digital background, I'm – very aware having an 80-something-year-old mother who in the past has used her mobile phone and iPad and stuff who doesn't want to anymore. Yeah. You know, I'm the rep on my, my aged care for her and, you know, my sister lives locally where she is, so I try to do the, the things further away. But yeah, so many things now expect you to be online and people, you know, for various reasons don't have access to IT or, you know, internet stable internet or high-quality internet, they may not have the cognition, they may not have the skill, and we can't have – we can't accidentally create a group Mm. that is disadvantaged by our advancements. Yes, yes. And, yeah, I can relate because I have two parents in their 80s and I've got one who, if you sit with her and and show her what to do, she's able to to learn and she's quite digitally – literate, but she also recently got stuck at a hospital after an appointment after my dad dropped her off <laughs> and went and sat in the park waiting for her to call, forgot he put, he didn't realise he put the phone on silent, mm-hmm. didn't even realise you checked the screen to see, oh, why hasn't she phoned? You know, two hours later, he finally thinks, oh, maybe I should go and see if she's finished. Yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know, no, that's, it's much more complex and and that's just a bit of a lighter story but you know I think there are so but it's symptomatic yeah yeah so many assumptions that we make about people and the skill levels that they have but also their access mm. to those sorts of tools and I know um, the access side is a really huge issue mm, very true yeah now you've talking about the work that you did in the Victorian cancer mm-hmm. center. And also, you, I understand you've also had to implement shared payroll systems across organisations. Yep. Some really big challenges. Rostering, timekeeping and payroll, yeah. <laughs> the, the Queensland Health System that we did successfully in Canada, public health. So, yeah. It's never the system that's the pro- – well, no, sometimes it is. It's often not the system that's the problem, so – yeah, and that challenge is when you're working with multiple stakeholders and organisations and trying to get them to collaborate. Um, and the unions, yeah, yeah, thousands of yeah. staff. So what are some of the lessons that you've learned there, Cathy, that you think might be helpful for other people? I think it's really part of that taking people on the journey stuff. I mean, in with the rostering, timekeeping and payroll system, we had some So there were eight organisations and we had some organisations that were already on IT systems, but others for the timesheets, they talked about black books and I thought, oh, that must be a system in Canada, you know, I'd arrived from Australia. It was actually big black ledger books. 
I felt like I was a first-year accountant again. You know, it's like, I mean, oh, my goodness. And they got a re- delivered in boxes to payroll once a week from around the province. It was like, oh, my goodness. And what we found is that in some pockets, because of award interpretation being done so differently and being done so locally, not just locally within each of the eight organisations that made up the health service, but also within little groups within that, particularly if it's all manual, that people were overpaid and underpaid and stuff. So I actually had the labour relations manager on my team 60% of her time just working with the staff, working with the unions. How do you tell someone they've been overpaid but they're not going to be disadvantaged by having to pay it back but in the future it's actually going to be different Yeah, because now everyone's going to get paid the same and we are actually going to interpret the awards correctly and directly. So I think it comes back to that engagement stuff again and it's also being really, really clear on what the objectives of the system are and communicating that out. We got out and about a lot. Yeah. And when I arrived, a number of my team, the project had sort of started and a number of my team had not worked in healthcare before. And so the first thing I did, and of course we were in a corporate office, I said, right, we're going out. And, you know, we started with children and women's. Yeah. And to see them walk through the cancer ward in the children's hospital and be thinking about what we're doing in this project actually impacts the people who are working with these kids all day, every day. Yeah, And it's re- it's really important for people in those project roles or those IT roles or whatever to understand that, you know, if we get their pay wrong or we muck up their roster or their timekeeping or whatever, we make it hard for them. We impact them emotionally. We may impact their families if we get their, their pays wrong. Yeah. And so what we're doing actually has real impact. Yes. Yeah. You know, we're not just sitting in a corporate office with all these people coding pay rules out of the award sort of stuff. Yep, yep. I couldn't agree with you more. Having worked for 10 years in corporate HR and IR, one of the things that we would regularly do is make sure that we would find opportunities for staff to actually go out and connect with people on the front end so that they really understood the impact of what they were doing every day and they're not dealing with some nameless, faceless person and they're understanding who they're interacting with and what's the impact on those people. Yeah. And the environments in which they work, I'll never forget going out to the forensic hospital, which was a new build, but it's basically the hospital for the criminally insane. And, you know, we had to go through, it was across the road from an old mental health facility, which was a beautiful old building and grounds, but that was used for admin these days, you know, because- yeah. People have been moved out to the community and stuff. But this new facility, we had to go through a couple of different things of, you know, steel bars and everything through security and stuff. And we were sitting in this big staff meeting waiting for our turn to present. And I was thinking, man, these people are working in this environment every day. Yeah. You know, it really comes home to you. And I'd been around a lot of hospitals, so the the walking through the cancer ward wasn't such a a big deal for me. But this, this environment was... Oh my goodness, you know, the, the pressure these staff are under and potentially personal danger and all those sorts of things. Yeah, yeah. So I'm curious, Kathy, what does thriving and complexity mean to you? For me, I actually enjoy a challenge and I enjoy learning. Yeah. So I don't mind the complex. You know, I like coming to groups with it. I like new environments, that sort of stuff. Yeah. What I don't like is 
too much bureaucracy and, you know, that I can't wade my way through. So, <laughs> so I think for me it is about learning from the personal perspective but also making a difference and having an impact. Yeah. You know, and that could be quite small. Sometimes it is quite small. Sometimes it's just an impact on a couple of people or whatever. Sometimes it's system change, which is fabulous, you know, if you can, yeah. if you can be involved in something like that. So they're the, probably the main things for me personally. Yeah. And have you ever been involved in a complex situation where afterwards you've thought, oh, I wish I had have done that differently? And if you have, what would you do differently next time? I think I was reflecting a bit on that, thinking about I'm not naturally someone who is patient. I like things to be efficient, organized, get on with it. You know, don't write too many plans. I mean, you can do, I think planning is important, but, you know, keep it fit for purpose. Yep. You know, the outcome is what we're here for sort of thing and the improvements and the patients or consumers or whoever. So I've become better at dealing with that as I've got older, but when I was younger, I would be more outspoken. Yeah. And probably at times spoke my mind. And in the finance industry, I was in a fairly senior role quite young, you know, and as I was learning those management skills and all that sort of stuff, I think, you know, I look back on some of those situations and think I probably, I've just learned to, you know, take a step back, take a deep breath and go, okay, you know, this is the way it is, you know, a bit at a time. Yeah. And I think particularly if you're working in big organisations or government, that sort of stuff, you've got to accept that it is a bit at a time and, and you're not going to get that that immediacy of action and change that you might prefer. Yeah. I used to work in a reform transition office at one stage and our little catch cry was, oh, look, here's one that we've prepared earlier <laughs> because you would – you know, do things and then things would change and you go, well, don't throw it away, just put it in the drawer and you can use it, not as is, but you've at least done some thinking that you can build on. Oh, and I mean, it's a bit of the joke, isn't it, about the health services, you know. It's the McKinsey thing, you know, they centralise and then you pay them and then you decentralise and yeah. you centralise. It's, it's what yes. goes around, comes around. It's cyclical. <laughs> mm, it is. Yes, yeah. So you've Probably jump to what I was going to ask you about. What advice would you give your 25-year-old self, which is almost what I was hearing you saying is don't just immediately jump to railing at the system, take a big breath, mm. you know, sit back, try and take in the bigger picture, put things into perspective. Is there anything else that you would? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things. One is to really accept that asking why is a strength. Yeah. I'm just naturally someone. So, you know, I talked about earlier, but we're different. But I go, but why? You know, should you be yes. those sorts of things? And yeah. as a consultant, that is absolutely a strength. And I think as a board member, while it might be frustrating for others at times, <laughs> I still think it's a strength. And I think the other thing is at that age, you know, you've come out of university and all that and you, you think you can plan your life. Yep. You absolutely can't plan your life. But life brings a whole lot of opportunities that you don't expect as well. Yes. You know, and even out of adversity at times, there are real opportunities and as I said, my husband's had some pretty significant health issues. But the first situation in Sydney actually led us to move to New Zealand because he was told to get out of the pollution. Yeah. You know, and what an opportunity. You know, you go, well, that's fantastic. Yes. Let's just do it. So yeah. it's that, well, it won't turn out how you expect or hoped. You know, there can be some great experiences along the way. Yeah, I think that's so true. And 
if you adopt that real, this is an opportunity to learn, it's an opportunity mm. to grow, let's see where it takes us and just really trying not to plan out every step mm. of your life, particularly I think when you look back, I know 25 was a long time ago for me. (laughs) (laughs) And what I thought was going to happen is not what happened at all. (laughs) But I probably exceeded my expectations Mm. in terms of the experiences that I've had and and what I've been able to do. So being open to that and not being too caught up in that that plan. And I think also being brave enough to take those opportunities when they arise. Yeah. Because – New situations are challenging and scary. Yes, yes. No matter how old, you know, I was saying that to a friend's daughter, I think it was the other day, someone of that younger generation, you know, it doesn't matter how old you are, how experienced you are, every time you go into a new organisation, there's stuff you have to learn, there's stuff you don't know, there's people you don't know and yeah. that's hard for a little while. Yeah, yeah. I remember going to an event where our former Governor-General, Quentin Bryce, spoke, Mm -hmm. and one of her reflections on why her career probably went the way it did was that people would come in and ask her to have a go at doing things, and instead of saying, no, I can't do that, she would say yes and then learn how to do it. And I think that's something women really need to learn. Yeah. I think men are much better at seeing that they can do 80% of a role and go, yep, I'll have a go at that, you know, I'll apply. Women go, oh, my goodness, there's 20% I can't do. Yes. And that's a generalisation, but I think there is some of that in women and we've just got to go, okay, well, actually, we can learn that 20%. Look, it's so true. I've had conversations, you probably did too, with colleagues and they're going, why didn't you apply for that job? I'm going, well, I can't do this and I can't do this and I can't do that. And they're going, but you can do all of these other things. Couldn't you learn how to do those other things on the job? So it's a really good point. I mean – Kathy, just thinking back on the conversation that we've had so far today, if people were to take one thing away with them, what do you think that one little nugget would be? I think to go to our point we've just be t- been talking about, grab the opportunities. You don't know where they'll lead. Yeah. Don't let fear be a, a factor. Yeah. Look for possibility. Look for possibilities. And I will give you one other thing. I was on a board with someone who had the offer of an, doing a master's in Oxford and was umming and ahhing about whether to go or not. And um, she and her husband had a five-year-old and she was going, oh, you know. And, and I said to her, my husband lived at Harvard for a year when he was six. He started school there because his father had a sabbatical there. And I said, I went back with him 30 years later and his memories of that time were fantastic and the experience of living in another country at that age. I said, your son, it'll be great, you know, or – they did it yeah. and they've not come back to Australia. You know, they lived in the UK and now they're <laughs> in the US and that sort of stuff. And I just remember that conversation so clearly because they were obviously just hesitating, thinking about their child and what would that mean and all that sort of stuff. But it was, I mean, you don't get offered a place at Oxford every day. <laughs> no, no. And so you never know where that next step is going to lead you, do you? Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And if you, yeah. So. There's lots of plus sides of actually saying mm. yes. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So, Kathy, if our listeners want to find you online, how can they go about doing that? Probably LinkedIn would be the best way. I don't have a very high social media online presence. Yeah. I work in digital and, you know, I'm very cyber aware. <laughs> 
but yeah, I've got I'm quite active on LinkedIn. So if people message me on LinkedIn or send a connection request or anything like that, I always respond. Oh, that's great. Mm. And look, Kathy, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a really interesting conversation. You've obviously had so many interesting experiences, but also very current experiences of the health system. So really appreciate you sharing your perspective today. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you had something you want to revisit or explore in more detail, you can check out the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode and you like helping others to open their thinking, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. As always, a big thank you to Leon Fitton and the team at the Podcast Concierge. That's all for this episode. I'll see you next time.